Last week, we started our series called uh, Follow Me in the Gospel of Mark. And we looked at what it looks like to live under the reign of God, and not this kind of reign, but the power and authority of God as we follow Jesus together. Jesus shows up. He's a big deal. Mark doesn't hide anything from the get-go. He announces that Jesus, the Son of God, the good news is here. And then we see Jesus go out and call his first disciples to follow him. That's what we saw last week. This week, we're going to see what happens when we come to Jesus with our needs and when he comes to us in our shame. When we come to Jesus with our needs and when he comes to us in our shame. We're going to look at two different stories. And in one story, you're going to see a bed. And in the, when you see that bed, I want you to think of your need. What need do you have that you want Jesus to heal or to fix or to use his power to deal with? The bed. But in the next story, you're going to see a booth, a tax booth. And when you see that booth, I want you to think of your place that you're ashamed of. You're, the place that uh, in your sin, you're separated, you're ostracized, or that place that you want no one else to know about. Lord, we do pray for your presence with us, your healing presence, your redemptive presence. We pray for uh, the power of your spirit right now as we dive into your word, uh, that we might be changed and transformed, that we might actually walk out of this room at the end loving you more, being more humbled before you and yet more confident in you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Some people think this is actually Jesus' home that he was at. Uh, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, Jesus said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What's your bed? What's your greatest felt need right here in this moment? What is it? Is it, is it, a, is it a new job? Is it to kind of get out from under someone else's power? Is it, is it that relationship that you've been longing for? Is it physical healing for your body? What is it? What is that bed that you long for Jesus to show his power and heal or restore. 
This story is about a man laying in a bed. Jesus is at his home, we believe, and he starts preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God. And as he's preaching and teaching, more and more people come to his house until it's packed, until they're spilling out of the doorway, until there's a crowd listening from the front of the yard. And men come with their friend who's in his bed. They bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus because they think that Jesus' power can do something about their friend who's in the bed. And when they get there, they see that there's no way to get to Jesus. There's no easy access to him. But faith fights to bring the bed to Jesus. They believe that if we really need Jesus and we believe Jesus, then we're going to have to fight to get to Jesus. We're going to have to find a way to get to Jesus through the crowd. And if that doesn't work, we're going to have to find a way to get around the house. And if that doesn't work, we're going to have to find a way to get on the house. And once we get on the house, we're going to have to find a way to get through the house so we can get down to Jesus and bring our bedridden friend to him. It's amazing the friends aren't stopped by anything. Faith fights to get your bed to Jesus. They had to get to him. And when Jesus sees the bed and sees their faith, it says that he notices their faith. He's impressed by their faith that fights to get the bed to Jesus. They have this unstoppable resolve. We've got to get to Jesus. They believe that he has power. They believe that he can do something. And so they fight to get the bed to Jesus. And the bed is lowered. You can imagine the awkward moment when you're in the crowd and you're listening to Jesus teach and preach and then you hear the tiles move above or footsteps above and all of a sudden this bed begins to lower down into the room and the crowd clears and they put the man on the ground. Ground. And Jesus, you can tell that he's changed his course of action now. He's no longer preaching. He's, he's looking at the bed and he's impressed by their faith and you've heard he has power, and you've heard he can heal this bedridden man. But he looks at the bedridden man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you can imagine maybe the shrugs or the kind of squinched eyes in the room. I don't really think that's why they're here, Jesus. I'm not sure that they came to have their sins forgiven. If you notice, there's a bed and there's a man laying on the bed and he doesn't seem to be able to walk. I think they're here because they want you to use your power to heal him. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. They had come with faith, faith that fights to get to Jesus, believing that Jesus would meet this man's greatest need. But maybe that's just it. Maybe that the healing of this man in his bed wasn't his greatest need. Maybe Jesus is actually going for this man's greatest need, and it's not what the man thinks it is. Maybe the, the man's greatest need, from Jesus' view, wasn't healing, but was forgiveness. But was forgiveness. His greatest need wasn't to be lifted out of the bed, it was to be forgiven. And I think that's instructive for us. 
Because as you think about whatever your bet is, whatever that represents to you, we often think that that is the greatest thing that Jesus can do for us is to fix that or heal it or redeem it or seal it, whatever it is. And yet, whatever your need is, we have a greater need that Jesus sees first. And our greater need is forgiveness of our sins, is forgiveness of our sins. You see, when humanity rebelled against God, our creator, everything broke. Everything broke. We feel shame because our identity and understanding of ourselves is broken. We get sick because our bodies are broken. We experience hatred and division because our relationships with each other are broken. And we need forgiveness from God because our relationship with God is broken. It's broken. We need forgiveness of our debt to God. And that is our greatest need. Not our bed, but to be reconciled with our creator. We have lived our lives not putting God at the center of our lives. We have joined the rebellion against him. God is in the right, and he is owed a debt that only he can forgive. And yet he's just, which means he can't just overlook the debt, or he'd no longer be just. Our debt to God keeps us from relationship with God. And if our debt is not dealt with in this life, we will be eternally separated from God in the life to come. And even if we pretend that that debt is not there, it remains active and looming. My wife handed me a bill the other day, and I put it under a stack of papers, hoping it would just go away. But that debt is still there. And it has got to be paid for somehow. Whether I pull it out or leave it there, I'm going to be called to account for that debt. And it is the same with us. Each human being has a debt that they owe God. Whether you ignore it or not, it is there. It is there. For this man, and I think for many in their culture, they thought that getting sick was a way to pay the debt. See, many believed that if you were sick in your body, it's because you had sinned. So getting sick was a kind of a way to, to pay your debt. But notice Jesus doesn't really say that. Jesus doesn't say you're sick because of, of your sin. The sickness wasn't due to his sin, but yet at the same time, getting sick wasn't paying his debt for sin. Let me explain what I mean. I think there's a view in our culture that says, okay, look, you're in trouble and it's not your fault, but because you are in trouble, it sort of atones for whoever you are victims don't need forgiveness. If you're oppressed by sickness, uh, you're, you're a victim. And so you haven't offended God. If you're oppressed by someone else, you're a victim. And so you haven't sinned against God and you don't need forgiveness. But what this passage is telling us is that you can still be oppressed by sin and it's not your fault. And yet you're still participating in sin. The sin isn't due, or the sickness isn't due to the sin, yet the man still owes God a debt that needs to be forgiven. And that's helpful for us because many of us have suffered. We have been victimized. You have been oppressed. You've been sick in your body. You've suffered injustice. Not because of your own sin. And yet, even though you've been victimized by the sin of another, it does not cancel your debt to God. It does not cancel your debt to God. 
Your suffering may not necessarily be because of your sin, but suffering doesn't cancel your debt for sin. Suffering oppression is not your pardon. You still need mercy. You still need forgiveness. You still need to be reconciled to God. And the good news is, is that God does forgive. God himself does forgive. He's the only one who can forgive the, get, the debt because he's to whom the debt is owed. If you sin against me or I sin against you, the, the one sinned against is the only one who can forgive the debt. Someone else can't do it. Which is why the scribes are a little confused when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they're right to be confused because only God can forgive sins. In fact, that's what they say. Only God himself can forgive sins. The scribes say, why does this man speak like that? He's speaking a great lie. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus heard their heart when they said that because the connection that they didn't make was that Jesus is God. So if Jesus is God, he can forgive sins, but he can also hear what they're saying even if they don't say it. Jesus responds to them and asks a question about his authority. And this is the moment where if it was like a telenovela, like the, the, the camera would like zoom in on Jesus and be like, da 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 And Jesus says to them, why do you question these things in your heart? You can imagine they're a little shocked and a little surprised because they didn't know that he had heard them, not with his ears, but with his godly intuition. That's an interesting thing about Jesus that I just want to talk about for a moment. Many people say that Jesus never says he's God in the Bible. Jesus reveals his God by, by using his power. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is doing things that only God can do. So if, you say, if someone says to you, Jesus never says he's God, take them right to this story and say, yeah, but Jesus does stuff that only God can do. Jesus hears their hearts and he asks them a question. He says, what's easier for me to say to this man who's lying in his bed? What's easier? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Now they're in a little bit of a conundrum. Jesus has asked a good question and it kind of stumps us because at first glance, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because that really can't be proven. And so he could just say it and no one would know the better. But on second glance, maybe they're both tough because if he's saying that he can forgive sins, maybe it means he actually is God, like we've said. But then if he's gonna say your, your uh, rise, get up and walk, he actually has to have the power to do that. And so they're in a little bit of a conundrum trying to figure out which is easier. And Jesus asked the question because he wants them to wrestle and he wants them to know that he has the authority to do both because he is God. In fact, Jesus says that he will go ahead and perform the miracle, which is visible, so that they know he can forgive sins, which is invisible. Jesus looks at the man in the bed and says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And the man rises, picks up his bed and goes home rejoicing. And everyone's stunned. Everyone's just stunned. It doesn't really mention the scribes though because I think they're still trying to analyze what happened and what all it means. But everyone else gets something out of it. 
get something out of it. And as we look at this man and his bed and Jesus, there are a few lessons we can take from that as we think about our bed, whatever that is, and our relationship with Jesus. First of all, Jesus has authority. As I said last week, Jesus is a big deal. There's no one with greater authority than Jesus. He can speak to us and say, your sins are forgiven. He can speak to us and say, rise, get up and walk. And it happens. Jesus is a big deal. And so that should be an encouragement for you to keep praying to Jesus who has authority over all things and all people and all situations. But I think it also helps us understand our beds, our felt needs, whatever that is. See, maybe you came to Jesus with a need. Maybe you showed up at church and you wanted prayer and you wanted something fixed or healed or redeemed or whatever. And maybe Jesus did it. This story shows us that there's more that you need from Jesus. If Jesus shows his power in your life and you say, I'm done, I'm walking away, thank you, Jesus, Jesus wants more for you. Jesus wants you to know him as the forgiver of sins. And so if you show up at church on Sunday just expecting to get a little something and then go home, Jesus wants you to hear this. You're a sinner who needs forgiveness, but he's the one who will forgive. He is the one who will forgive. Jesus was sent not just to display his power, but to die for you on the cross. He was put on the cross in your place. He died, and on the third day, he rose again and promises to return one day. And he did all that because he wanted to restore you to God. Your bed is not the biggest deal in your life. The biggest deal in your life is the need to be reconciled to God. And praise God, Jesus reconciles through his death on the cross. But let me go a little deeper. Maybe you already have been reconciled to God through Jesus. Maybe you've asked for forgiveness and you're walking with God. You're following Jesus. You've been adopted into his family. You love Jesus more than anything. You're a child of God. You're part of God's blended family. And yet your bed is still there. Every morning you wake up, you get out of your real bed, but in your mind, whatever your felt need is, it's still there. It has not been healed. It has not been fixed. It looms over you. That is a tough situation. Jesus, if you have the power to heal it, why don't you? I'm here. I'm following you. I love you. I, 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 I obey you. Why aren't you fixing my need? I want to offer you this. I don't know why Jesus doesn't fix all of our problems. I don't know why he doesn't heal when he can, but I know that he's good. And I know that he gave his life for us to forgive our sins, that his posture towards us is one of love. And then if he hasn't given you something that you feel you need, he must not feel like you need it. And that's not because it's mean, it's because he loves you. He loves you deeply. So what do you do? How do you, how do you sort of get perspective where you come to appreciate the forgiveness even though your bed is still there? Well, you have to stop looking at your bed for a moment and start looking at your booth. You have to take your eyes off your bed and look at your booth. We continue the story in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. And Mark takes us to the next scene. 
Jesus went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi. That, that's Matthew. Matthew has two names, Matthew or Levi. The son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he actually heard it this time. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Matthew was a tax collector, and he sat probably out on the street somewhere, and he probably had a table with a chair and maybe even an awning or tent that was over him. I put a picture of one author's depiction of a tax booth on the internet yesterday. You can look at it if you're interested. But that tax booth was where he sat to collect taxes. And that's what it looked like, but it represented something much, much deeper. Because Matthew was not collecting taxes for his government. He was collecting, collecting taxes for the government that was oppressing his people, the Roman government. And oftentimes tax collectors skimmed a little bit or a lot off the top of their taxes. So they were viewed by other Jews as cheats. They swindled. They took what they wanted and they kept it. They could make taxes up as they go. And because he represents the oppressive government, you have to obey him. Matthew was a cheat. Not only that, he was seen as a traitor because he was collaborating with the oppressing government. And he was unclean. As a Jew who has certain ceremonial regulations about how you deal with non-Jews, Matthew violated that. He is around non-Jews, the Romans, all the time. So not only is he a cheat and a traitor, but he's seen as unclean and separate. Even on top of that, he was seen as an oppressor. He was someone who had joined a force that was oppressing God's people. So when we talk about Matthew at the tax booth, I don't want you to just picture a table and a chair and an awning with some money on it. Symbolically, this was something that Matthew's own people hated despised and did not like anyone who had collaborated with the Romans to sit at that tax booth and oppress them. Matthew's tax booth was a place of sin and separation and shame. What's your booth? What's that place in your life that you're deeply, deeply ashamed of? that you feel like separates you from other people, that you don't want other people to find out about. Maybe it was that pregnancy. Maybe it was the bottle you keep going back to. Maybe it's your tongue that you just cannot tame. Maybe it's the hard heart that you just cannot seem to soften to that other person. It's that thing from the past that you just don't want anyone to find out about. What's your booth? The amazing thing is that when Jesus comes up to the booth, I'm sure he saw Matthew sitting there and he saw the table and maybe he saw money spread out over the table or boxes of money. And maybe he saw people standing around the table represent 
representing the very people that Matthew was oppressing. I'm sure Jesus saw all that when he came up to the booth. And it's interesting what Jesus could have said, or maybe what I would have even said. I would have gone to Matthew and said, Matthew, how long have you been working this tax booth? How many people have you defrauded? How much money have you swindled from our people in our country? But Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus walks up to the booth. He sees everything that's happening right there. And he looks at Matthew and says, follow me. Follow me. Jesus comes to us right where we are. Whatever your booth is, whatever that place is in your life that you are ashamed of, that you feel is so sinful that it separates you from other people, Jesus meets you there. Jesus comes to us right where we are. Whether that's dealing, whether it's using, whether it's the amount of men or women you've been with, whether it's, it's the babies or the times that you've tried to quit and haven't been able to, whether it's the number of jobs that you have tried to hold down and have not been able to hold down one single one of them, whether it's the fact that you've trashed another person's reputation or you have an unforgiving heart, Jesus comes to you right there in your booth and says, follow me. Follow me. And what's amazing is Matthew gets up and follows Jesus. And my first thought is like, hey, grab, grab some coins before you go. Don't just leave it all there. But Matthew does. Matthew gets up, leaves the tax table. It doesn't say he brought anything with him. And he just follows Jesus out of his booth. Follows Jesus out of his booth. Jesus comes to us exactly where we are, but he does not leave us as we are. Jesus calls us into new life and following him. And that, that's why Christianity is so different than not only every other religion, but every other way of thinking. Because every other way of thinking says, you've got to get yourself together before you can join. And Jesus says, I come to you right where you are in your booth and say, come, leave, follow me. He meets us in our deepest, darkest sin and shame, comes right up to the table and says, come, follow me. And that's because change doesn't come from us. It comes from being with Jesus. Change comes from being with Jesus. Christianity is not a set of tips for spirituality. It's not tools to be more religious. It's not advice on how to be better. Christianity is Jesus coming to you in your sin and saying, come, follow me, follow me. God in the person of Jesus comes to you in your booth. And what's quite amazing about Jesus, you know, as we think of Jesus starting a movement, which he did, and as we think about many of the other movements that are going on in our country right now, there's been a lot of protests for various things. And, and I just find that Jesus is so different. Jesus is so different than any other movements we see in our country because Jesus comes to start a movement for those who shouldn't be part of the movement. And I know that you're going, what does that mean? I'm, I don't know, but that's what Jesus does. Jesus starts a movement for those who don't deserve to be part of the movement. He comes to spend time with those who don't believe in the core tenets of his movement. Jesus doesn't come against, but rather goes to and says, come follow me. And that's why the movement of Jesus is so different than anything you and I could lead or create. You know, as a sidebar, I have a friend who leads um, an organization called Faith for Justice. 
And I've always thought that the way she leads this is so Christ-like because she spends so much of her time with people who don't believe in the movement. Just loving them, caring for them. And then all of a sudden they find themselves swept up in the movement with her because she sat down with them and cared for them. And, I, and for me, that's a little bit, bit of a picture of what Jesus is like. Jesus comes to seek the sinful. And so much so that the next scene we see, there's a party full of tax collectors and sinners. And it says, for many followed him. And the scribes and Pharisees are blown away that don't you get this man? If you're gonna be a rabbi, those are not the people that you've come to start a movement for. Those are the very people that you wanna yell at and scream at and protest against. But Jesus, while relaxing comfortably with tax collectors and sinners who had left their things and followed him, says, those who are well have no need of a physician. Rather, those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, I would love it if New City Fellowship more and more looked like that scene. If we looked more and more like Jesus calling people out of their booths and yet fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors. And I think oftentimes we as the church get critiqued for not being willing to go out of the pews and into the city and sit down with sinners and tax collectors, whoever that would be, because we've forgotten our own booths. We forgot where we came from. We forgot the fact that Jesus called us out of something and we had nothing to offer Jesus. All we had was money on the table or whatever your tax booth was. And yet Jesus came to us in our sin and in our shame and in our separation and said, follow me. And I think if we remembered that and we remembered our booths, we remember where we came from, the church could look completely different. The church could look completely different. I think our posture towards people would look different. We'd be more quick to show mercy than judgment. Do you show mercy more than judgment? Where are you in the story? Are you one of the scribes who is baffled that a sinner could come to Jesus? Let me show you where to look. Look on your Facebook posts. What do you write on, what do you write on Facebook? I think if we looked at our Facebook posts, we'd see that oftentimes we're ready to lob grenades into the culture, but not show mercy. Jesus sits down and shows mercy with sinners who are not part of the movement. But let me ask you this, you know, as we're talking about sharing the gospel with our friends who are sinners just like us, do you believe that Jesus could actually call them to himself? Or do you believe that they're so far away from Jesus that they would never come? Remember your booth. Remember what he called you out of. And that if he called you to himself out of your sin and shame, he can call anyone. And that should give you great confidence to share the gospel. Because you're not sharing yourself. You're sharing Jesus who loves sinners. I read a story uh, on the internet about a pastor who was on some sort of trip and somehow he ended up kind of walking the streets at 3.30 in the morning. 
very late at night, and he found a diner, just kind of a grubby diner, and he went inside, and the door swung open, the bell hit, he went and sat down, and uh, the guy behind the counter was tired and, and uh, kind of grimy, and uh, he said, hey, um, you're open, right? And the guy said, yeah, and he said, well, can I get a coffee and donut? And he said the guy behind the counter kind of went like this with his hand and grabbed a donut without getting a glove and just gave it to him. And the pastor said, okay, I'll I'll go ahead and eat it. And as he's eating his donut and sipping his coffee, the door swings open again and he hears the voices of about eight or nine women who had been out working, working girls in the night, come in, in wanting to get something to eat. And they sat down on both sides of him and he said it was kind of loud and and kind of crude, and he was just sort of taking it all in. And one woman said, he said he heard one of the women say, you know, tomorrow's my birthday, I'm gonna be 39. And one of the other girls with her said, well, Agnes, what do you want us to do for you? You want us to throw you a birthday party? You want us to have a cake for you? I mean, what do you want? You want us to decorate? What do you want? To, what do you want? And she was kind of ribbing her. And Agnes, the woman who was having the birthday said, come on, give me a break. Uh, I, I'm just joking around. I've never had a birthday party in my life. No one's ever bought me a cake. And the conversation moved on. Eventually the women went back out into the night and the pastor sat there continuing to sip his cup of coffee. And he looked up at the man behind the diner and he said, that that woman, that woman who was with the other women who said something about her birthday, Agnes was her name? Tomorrow's her birthday, right? And the man said, yeah, Agnes is wonderful. She's a really nice, kind woman, but she's never had anything nice done for her. And the pastor kind of smiled and he said, do they come in here every night at 3.30? And the, the, diner, um, the diner manager said, yes, they come in every night at 3.30. And the pastor said, what if tomorrow night I came back and we had a birthday party for Agnes? And he heard another voice in the back. It was the manager's wife. She was back there cooking. And she said, that would be a great idea. Agnes is so sweet. And the pastor said, I'll get a cake and I'll get decorations and maybe you can let a few people know. Well, the next night, the pastor showed back up at 2.30 and they decorated the whole diner and it looked okay, looked okay. And about 3.15, every working girl in the city came because they heard about the party and they wanted to celebrate Agnes. So there was this pastor in the middle of all these ladies who had been out working in the night. And at 3.30, Agnes and one of her friends walked in. And on cue, everyone said happy birthday and began singing happy birthday to Agnes, happy birthday to you. And Agnes was shocked. Her jaw dropped, her knees crumpled a little bit, her friend had to grab her arm. She just couldn't believe that anyone would meet her right where she was at and celebrate her. They brought Agnes over to the table And they sat her down and they brought a cake to her and they sang happy birthday. And Agnes, as the man went to cut the cake, Agnes said, please don't cut it. I've never had a cake in my life. Um, Could I just take the cake home and put it in my fridge? She'd never been in a birthday party before. She didn't actually know that was a little bit rude, but she'd never had a cake. And it meant so much to her that she wanted to go and preserve the moment where she had been celebrated. So she took the cake and left her party and went home and didn't come back. And the pastor felt a little awkward, what do we do? And so he just said, can I pray for Agnes? And there in that room, 
surrounded by prostitutes, the pastor prayed for Agnes. He prayed that she would meet God. He prayed that Jesus would save her. And he prayed that God would protect her on those streets. See, as we remember our own booth, we realize that the church kind of looks more like that. The church becomes a hospital for sinners. The church becomes a hospital for sinners. And it's not us, it's not on us to decide who gets mercy and who doesn't. Because if Jesus wants to hang out with sinners, he must have enough mercy for everybody. He must have enough mercy for everybody. After they were done praying, the guy behind the counter said, you're praying, are, are you a preacher? And the guy said, yeah, I'm a preacher. He said, well, you didn't tell me that. What kind of preacher are you? What kind of church do you go to? And the pastor said in that moment, he just kind of had the words and he said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. And the guy behind the diner said, no, you don't. There's no church like that. There's no church like that because if there was a church like that, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Friends, that is what the church is supposed to be. And by being here and saying that we are New City Fellowship Church, that is what we are supposed to be in the community. Loving those around us, remembering our own booth so that as we go to them and share God's love, we're not doing it from a place of superiority, but a place where we understand exactly where they're coming from. Because Jesus met us in our sin and our shame. That is the church, a group of sinners who are fellowshipping with Jesus and have been saved out of their booths. We go to people and meet them in their booths and in their shame with Jesus because that is exactly where Jesus met us. May that be true of this church and may that be true of every church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you as broken people who often forget what you called us out of. We pray today that as we wrestle with our beds and yet you would remind us of our booths, that you would keep us grounded in your mercy, that we would remember that we were sinners and we are sinners who have nothing to offer you, and yet we follow you because you give us mercy. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that Jesus died in our place and loves to fellowship with us. We thank you for this morning. We ask that you'd continue to walk with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.